Hello everyone and welcome to a new Node Up one-on-one episode and I'm Rod Vag. I do open source at NodeSource, I'm a Node.js core team member and today I have a very special guest, one of my very favorite people, Jessica Lord. Say hello, Jessica. Hello everyone. <laughs> now, Jessica has been around the Node ecosystem for a while. You may know her from conferences and other places. So Jessica, why don't you tell us how people might know you and what it is you're doing now and Let's see if we can make some connections for people. I am an engineer at GitHub and I'm on the Electron team. I've been at GitHub for about three years now. So people may have known me through various things I've done at GitHub. Um, I was at Code for America before that. And I, I tweet and I blog and I go to conferences. And okay, so today's show is sponsored by DigitalOcean. You'll hear about more about our sponsor and also how you can sponsor the show a little bit later. First of all, we're going to dive into who is Jessica, where did you come from, and how did you get into the industry? So tell us a bit about your journey into the tech industry, Jessica. So I am someone who did not always was not always in the tech industry. My background has been in architecture and urban design, and for a lot of my career, or I guess pre-career, I explicitly avoided going into tech. I told my mom before, well, when I when I applied to college for an architecture major, she asked me why I wasn't doing computer science, and I told her that that was a hobby and not a job that people had. But so I, yeah, I went to school for architecture, but I've always loved computers, and so I used to do a bunch of side projects on my own. But I was also from middle Georgia, so I was also the only person I knew who <laughs> knew what was inside of a website. So I, I dabbled and I sort of took all the extracurricular classes that I could involving technology um, in college. And then after college, did architecture and eventually was at the city of Boston as an urban designer there in the urban design technology group, which I thought was the perfect place because then I got to be an urban designer and using cool software to do maps and shadow studies and plan out what Boston would look like and do signage regulations so that the Dunkin' Donuts would have their signs exactly how we wanted them. And so I was there at the city of Boston for three years. And I got frustrated with kind of what I felt like was technology, but what the city considered technology. And in a lot of ways, I was trying to tell them about technology that a lot of us would take for granted, but were still seen as things that no one wanted to touch. And people were like, what is a blog? What do you mean? And so it so was my when you when you say a lot of us, do you mean like us as in the people listening to this podcast or just like younger people? Is that was that the problem? Yeah, probably both. I mean, people who are in technology and maybe people who are younger and have grown up with technology. So both. So so that industry is a fairly it's fairly old school then. It has trouble adapting. Yeah, definitely. Um, I remember after I started, there was a person who retired who had been there for 40 years and had. they made a joke that his first email was his goodbye email during the time that I was there. And I was like, oh, 
okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a whole other city technology and government procurement and all of that is a whole other thing. But yeah, I kept hitting walls and getting kind of frustrated. And it was my third year at the city when Code for America launched, which is a nonprofit in San Francisco that pairs designers, developers, civic activists with city governments. And again, like I met those fellows, they kind of worked with the department I worked with. And I thought, that's cool. Like I like their mission. I like what they're doing. And when I thought about myself in that role, I thought like, oh, I, I'm a creative. I can't be on the computer all day, which like thinking back on that now is so silly because I still was just on the computer all day anyways. I applied for Code for America just kind of on a whim as I was getting more frustrated with the things I was trying to make happen at the city. And I got it. And so I moved out to California. I'd never been to California. I didn't know anyone in California. And I started Code for America. And that is how it all really began. That's when I learned what GitHub was. That's when I really was able to start putting together the pieces of technology that I knew just sort of on my own that was really scattered knowledge. Because like I said, like, I was really the only person I knew that was into that stuff. I just did it on the side. And so Code for America brought in a bunch of those pieces and a ton of new pieces. And so that's, that's when I learned that open source was a thing with a community behind it. One of the things I really wanted to happen at the city was I wanted the city to start sharing ideas and opening up what they were doing more. And at the time, I didn't know like the term open source. And I didn't know there was a community around that. And so once I joined Code for America and learned about GitHub and started meeting all these people writing open source, I really felt like I had found that place that I wanted to be. And so that's how I got started in all this. <laughs> so you, you said that you, were, you considered yourself a creative, which is interesting because I, I hear that you, you studied architecture and you went into a fairly technical job and yet you still considered yourself a creative. How, how does that work? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and I mean, and certainly now um, spending the last four years as an engineer, I think it's a very <laughs> creative job. So there still was just a definitely more of a sketch and design on paper aspect to the job. And, and maybe for better or worse, like a more objective kind of system, right? Because some of it was bound by real numbers. So like shadow studies, and these are things like things that we can measure happening to the city. That was definitely I mean, that's measurable and, you know, a clear this is bad, this is good. But then some things were really aesthetic and just like, we don't like how this building looks. And so I don't know it. I don't know. <laughs> I, I guess I guess it's, this, speak, this speaks to some of the like we've got some blurring of lines now and and in in our industry, particularly in people who are doing JavaScript, we've got a much much more blurred line between what you would consider creative and what you would consider technical. So I guess yeah. that's what you're bumping up against. Yeah, and and like I said, like I I mean that's what I thought at the time. I think I just I didn't have the right perspective because certainly I still use 
programming now as a creative outlet, you know, even if it's just like creating a super simple site, you know, and designing that is a creative outlet. I just didn't know. I clearly <laughs> didn't know what it was like to actually be an engineer then. Now, I read a uh, an article the other day. Actually, no, it was an article. A Tumblr. There's a Tumblr called Worst of McMansions. Um, <laughs> McMansionHell.tumblr.com. And I, and I read, it was like one article of this thing, and it has ruined me now because I look at houses and I'm seeing some of these rules that architects have when they look at buildings. And, and, and I don't really want to see them anymore because it's, it, I look at buildings and, and have to criticise them. Are you the kind of person that looks at buildings and, ha- and, and applies an architecture point of view to it, or are you kind of relaxed about your design aesthetic? I definitely apply... I have feelings about architecture. I think also look, looking back on my time spent in architecture and I, I really think it's, it's so funny how much I enjoyed programming and how much I struggled against sort of like what is architecture and, and the profession. Certainly there are wonderful, great architects out there, but I really felt like going to school for architecture in this age was about a certain type of architecture and about pleasing other architects. And there was actually, and I think, you know, I, I don't think my background and in architecture is always that dissimilar from what I do now, you know, like the things that really I struggled with in architecture school, like I would look up neighborhood regulations and I tried to build buildings to please people and, the professors were like, don't do that. You know, you have to use the whole language of architecture and light and phenomenality. And it was all about impressing other architects rather than making habitable spaces. And so yeah, that, that does that sound familiar dis- to what we do. <laughs> yeah. And so that kind of disconnect, I think, I think that is a really like clear connection to why I enjoy open source so much. Okay, if now you were sense. you were one of the early people involved in in Node School. So when when we first formed this thing, and we had a couple of different workshoppers to for people to use, you were you were one of the first to write an additional workshopper for this called Git It. Yes. Um, can you tell us about your involvement in Node School and how that how how you got to doing that with Git? How did that go down? The Node School workshops started after a Node Conf many years ago. I mean, maybe three years ago. And as you know, because you wrote the Node School Workshopper module that Gitit is built on, these little tutorials for Node started popping up. And actually, at the time, I knew like I knew what Node was, but I'd never really written Node. I was still writing. I was doing all front-end work at GitHub. I worked on various github.com front-end things. And so I really wasn't writing Node, even though sort of my community had become Node and I knew a lot of Node developers and was going to NodeConf. <laughs> and I did those workshops at the Nodes, at NodeConf and I thought they were awesome and I thought it'd be really cool if I made one, but obviously I'm not a Node expert, so I don't have anything to write one on. And then Max Ogden was like, but you can do one on Git. You know Git really well. And I was like, but everyone already knows Git, which is also obviously not true. He convinced me that I could totally do it for Git because that was the thing that I knew. And so that was how 
I chose to make Get It. And so in doing Get It and writing that workshopper was actually how I finally sort of dove into Node because I had to build a robot to interact with people. And obviously the workshoppers themselves are in Node, but I actually had to build a server with a robot who does all this stuff to interact with people. And so Get It is what led me from front end to Node. Yeah, and now the, that workshop really forms part of the core syllabus of Node School, which I think is totally appropriate because Node and Git go together really well. Tell us a bit about how Git it works. Like, how do you teach Git through that style? Yeah, so actually, Git it has had, well, I was going to say three, but I'll simplify it to two transformations because it does still exist as the workshopper. So the whole thing runs in terminal. But I also have an Electron version now because one of the things that we were running into in the places where we are using Git it was if you're doing the Node School workshoppers and your aim is hopefully to learn Node and that's why you're there, one of the first steps is, you know, install Node. But if you're someone who's learning Git or just wanting to understand Git a little, um, having someone install Node on their computer and explain that like it's not going to have an icon on your desktop, just trust me, it's fine, and trying to streamline Node installations across all the operating systems, that was kind of a big hurdle for people using Git-It. You know, people using Git-It were coming from all backgrounds of like, you know, I don't work in development, but I work at a small company with developers, and we're using GitHub, like I just want to know how to use GitHub better. And so there were all kinds of places people were coming into wanting to learn about Git and GitHub. And so putting it on Electron actually made it really nice because now no one has to install anything else. Well, except for Git, but they're there to learn Git. So hopefully that's okay. And so now it's a desktop app that they can install. But it actually... Is a was a really cool process to take a working workshopper module and turn it into an Electron app because Electron apps are websites and JavaScript. And what my workshopper was, because I found that I wanted to diagram and explain like branching and stuff like that, and it was hard to do strictly in the terminal, I created a web guide to go along with the terminal app. So when I wanted to turn it into an Electron app, I literally just started by dragging the web guide and dragging all my verifying scripts into an empty Electron project. And it like, it worked right off the bat, which is the cool thing about Electron. The work after that had to do with like building the verifying stuff within the app instead of in terminal anymore. But yeah, it was, it was really cool to just be able to use so much of the stuff that had already been written. Now, get it, it culminates in collaborating on a, or contributing to a, a public repository, doesn't it? So it's actually, it not only teaches Git, it actually introduces you to open source as well. Yes, it goes through the whole flow of you install Git, you create a local repository, you learn to make changes and commit those changes, then you learn how to put that repository on GitHub. And so that's the sort of using Git locally and working with yourself first phase of it. And then the next phase is working with other people. So you learn how to 
fork and clone a open source repository and then you add a collaborator to that project which is the repo robot the server and then you have to pull in their changes and then finally make a pull request back to the original and actually i just learned last week that it is it has the most unique contributors on all of github out of every github project <laughs> that, that is an awesome achievement yeah Cool. So, have, uh, have any of the other workshoppers been converted to use Electron? Do you know of? I don't know. Um, I wonder. I, I, I suspect a bunch of them could actually really benefit from that. Yeah, but there needs to be your your workshopper module needs to exist as an Electron framework. It's it's back in my mind as a to do to sort of just tear all those parts out of the get it electron version now so that it can there can be just this framework for building lessons in an electron app. Well, there's a great open source project for someone yeah. listening to this that wants to get involved. Go and do that. Because that's what I did originally with Workshopper was I pulled it out of Substack's stream adventure. Just like that, someone else could go and do that to your work and uh, make it a useful framework. You've been involved in running Node schools in your area, haven't you? And is, is, do you still do much of that, or is that time sort of passed for you? Yeah, I haven't done it in a while, actually. I moved to Portland a year and a half ago. I also, about a year ago, kind of got really tired <laughs> and tried to tried to take more breaks in programming and I've only sort of recently felt myself get back up the energy to spend more evenings working on stuff but there was a while there where I was just tired but I did I did do um them in in San Francisco and Oakland and also I did GitHub Patchworks which were a thing that started that was also part of why I built Get It too was I had volunteered to start this community workshop that hosted by GitHub and we decided to call them Patchworks and it was going to teach people how to get to their first pull request and so part of the impetus of like going ahead and doing Get It as the workshopper was like what am I going to have these people do at this workshop and so that still exists, GitHub Patchworks. You can go to patchwork.github.io. And we now have a full-time person at GitHub who is amazing, Elizabeth, who coordinates all of them, and they are happening all over the world. Usually the way it works is if there's a small group of GitHubers in a city for some reason, maybe they're having a team mini-summit or they're there for a conference, then they'll host a Patchwork. And so very similar to the Node School idea. And so I've done a, a bunch of those and that's been fun. That's awesome. So I guess it was probably about a year ago, um, I think, that you transitioned to the Electron team. Is that, that about right? Yeah, it wasn't even a team a year ago. <laughs> right. So I think me working on Electron, me becoming the second person on Electron, maybe then made it as a team before it was uh, just Chang who's another GitHubber who wrote Electron originally, he used to work on Node WebKit. And when the Atom team, GitHub's text editor, was vetting different frameworks, trying to figure out how they were going to build Atom, they got to talking with him and they had similar ideas of this thing they wanted to exist. And so Chang 
agreed to build it. <laughs> and, um, he, he first came on as a contractor and then eventually came on as a full-time employee. And so he built Electron and it was really kind of just a dependency of Adam for a long time, you know, even when when Adam open sourced and open sourced everything with it, you know, it came out, it was Adam shell. And, and so it wasn't until spring and early of last year where there was really starting to be noticeable momentum. We hadn't really done anything, you know, people just kind of found it on their own. And I mean, I say people like people like Slack and Microsoft. And so they were, Slack and Microsoft were building things on it. And so it seemed silly to have the things they were building tied in name to, you know, GitHub's text editor. And so it was spring last year, it got its own name and like a single page website that I made. And that was that was our first like, now we've done something for Electron. But then by the time that summer came, I was really getting excited and wanting to work on it so I got them to let me to start working on it. All right so so you weren't asked to go and work on it you you saw the potential and you said I want to go work on that please. Yeah (laughs) yes. So we can actually give you a lot of the credit for um, how far (laughs) electrons come as a as a separate entity. Yeah well I mean it was it was hard because we were the Adam team the Adam team never has enough people ever to do all the things that, you know, Adam wants to do. And so it was always kind of tough to put resources into Electron, but I guess I just pushed hard enough. And so I got to start working on it. And then at the beginning of this year, we made our first hire and then another person from the Adam team moved over. And now we are a totally official team of four people, <laughs> four engineers and, and a manager. And yeah, we, we have our own, all of our own repos and team name and everything. So <laughs> I think you're official. That's great. Okay. Well, you know, I think people listening to this are going to be fascinated by Electron. So we're going to jump into that. But first of all, we're going to hear from our first sponsor. Well, actually our only sponsor, DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the best place to get your application off the ground quickly and the easiest to scale when you find success. Start with the pre-configured Node.js one-click to get up and running in 55 seconds, or build the exact infrastructure you need with root access to servers running 100% SSDs in state-of-the-art data centers around the world. Scale your infrastructure using advanced features like floating IPs for high availability, private networking, and API access for automated deployments. DigitalOcean is the fastest-growing cloud infrastructure provider because it's built for developers and laser focused on its mission to create simple and elegant solutions for developers and teams. Visit digitalocean.com and use the promo code NOTEUP on the billing page for a $10 credit to get started today. Back into it, let's move in and look more at Electron because this is fascinating. I remember it was actually the same NodeConf where we started Node School, where I'm pretty sure it was you who introduced me to two guys from GitHub that were working on this new text editor. Um, yes. Can you tell tell us about tell us more about how that like how how did Atom came about come about and how did Electron really get separated off from that? Yeah. Well, so the story of Atom really goes way way back. Chris Wanstrath, the one of the founders of GitHub, and our CEO, 
he had this idea for Adam originally around the time when he was starting GitHub. So like 2008. And then this GitHub thing really did well. And then all of a sudden he didn't have time for his experimental text editor. And so he kind of dropped the idea. And then I I forget the exact amount of time that passed, but a certain amount of time passed. GitHub was stabilizing and he started to think about it again. And And so that's when they built a team at GitHub to work on it. And they experimented with a lot of different technologies, like it was written in Ruby at first, and then then they moved to Node, and they tried the Chromium Embedded Framework and Node.js, and then finally, like I mentioned, worked with Chang and built Atom Shell. And then in 2013... Wait, nope, 2014. This spring or summer of 2014 is when it was uh, open-sourced and all of Atom and all of its components were open-sourced. But yeah, it was right before Atom was open-sourced. I don't even even think it might not have been announced when we were all at that NodeConf, but Nathan Sobo and Kevin Sawicki were the two GitHubers there who were working on Adam at the time. And it's Kevin Sawicki who is now on the Electron team. But we, so we all used to be on the Adam team. And yeah, it was really just last summer when, like I said, there was just so much more momentum being built on Electron. So, so many more people building on Electron, which was the momentum that we started. That's how Electron started to branch out. And at first it was just we were doing more Electron stuff within the Atom team. And then it was this year when we became really our own our own group with our own kind of roadmap and our own Slack room and our own repos. Created the electron org. You sound very proud of having the, having your own team now. So it must yeah, have been a long journey. <laughs> it was. It was. It felt. It was. It was really nice to have like our own org and our own space. So, so Adam is one thing, and I, and I know there's a lot of fans of Adam that'll be listening to this. But the, the thing I find fascinating is how quickly Electron took off as a a technology that's that really f- founded its own ecosystem. How, how how do you explain the that rapid popularity of it? What what is it about Electron that has been so unique and is off such a such a valuable proposition to users to to build on? Yeah, I think. I mean, I've done no scientific studies on this, but and I know it's it's a very bad thing to say that any technology or library is easy. This is simple to use. <laughs> But I would like to think that relative to things, Electron is actually like uh, fairly straightforward. And especially if you use like the Quick Start app, you can just start writing HTML. And it's not a lot of new stuff to learn, right? There, you don't have to necessarily buy into an Electron way of thinking. You're just writing Node and you're writing JavaScript and you're writing HTML and CSS. So you're doing these things that a lot of people already know and are comfortable with. So they're able to bring all of that experience into it. 
there's just there's no there's no buy-in for the electron way of doing things you know you can use any framework that you want if you are a react person or an ember person whatever your flavor is you can do that and so if you're a no framework person you can do that too and so i think i think that is that is a big perk of Electron that you can really use what you're comfortable with. You, there's not a lot of buy-in to a specific Electron way of doing things. And it also is just kind of a magical place where you write HTML with Node. And, <laughs> and feel like it feels powerful. You know, you can read the file system and update the DOM and it's just like the dream world. So I, I guess it's similar to Node where people who are used to writing JavaScript on the front end can suddenly write amazing server-side applications. You can do the same thing with Electron where you take your existing knowledge and just build amazing desktop applications. Yeah. You're also only designing for one browser, which is Chrome. So anything that comes out in Chrome, you can use, you know, you can use CSS variables, you can use most of ES6 and and so if you're, if you're a web developer who has felt stifled by cross-compatible browser issues and been really wanting to try cool stuff that's out in Chrome, you can now very freely in Electron. So tell us about some of your, the big users. Um, so I think we all are aware of at least the apps, whether or not we know they're built on Electron. Um, <laughs> tell us about some of the, the major users of Electron other than Atom. Yeah, so Slack is one. Slack's a Windows and Linux apps are Electron. Microsoft's Visual Studio Code, is it's a text editor, and that is Electron. WhatsApp, which is the enormously popular messaging app, they have a desktop app that's Electron. I think Microsoft just did a Linux version of Skype in Electron. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. I remember the, the Lynx version of Skype being the most terrible thing you could install. <laughs> so that's great news. Yeah, oh, Brave Browser. So yeah, what's actually, that's a whole other funny realm of things, like people building browsers on Electron, which is really cool. <laughs> and something I wouldn't even have thought of initially. And to have a competitor to Atom, VS Code, yeah. Built on Electron is fascinating too. I, th I think, I can't remember. I, I thought maybe I'd seen a thread about Adobe Brackets moving over. There's other text editors on Electron as well. Not by places as big as Microsoft, but it's definitely, there's, there's a theme to some of the Electron apps people build. You know, there's definitely text editors, messaging clients, like chat clients, markdown editors, a lot of markdown editors, blog editors, WordPress and Ghost have desktop apps on Electron. Yeah. <laughs> what, are the, what are some of the novel uses of Electron that you've seen that are outside of those general themes? My favorite one to mention all the time is called Moji Bar, and it's by Muancho at GitHub. And it is a menu bar app. So it just runs in the menu bar. And these, I feel like, are really perfect gateway apps into Electron because they're super small. They just do one thing, and it really, you know, it gets you into 
understanding Electron using like a few of the Electron APIs, but without having, you know, to build something as complex as like a text editor or a full-blown app. So Mojibar just has a JSON file of keywords associated with every emoji. And so instead of having to remember the official emoji name, you can just type the keyword, type your feeling, and then find the emoji that you're looking for. And so I think the menu bar emoji apps are really cool. And and I think Max Ogden has got a, a framework for run, writing menu bar apps. Is that right? Yes, it's called menu bar. <laughs> and, and what sort of stuff is being built on that? Because I find that interesting as well, when you have this big framework to build windowed applications, but you're actually using it for a fairly minimal use case. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how many people are using that underneath, actually. But it, it does eliminate a few of the steps and makes it really easy to just, it, it basically, you know, it just assumes that your Electron app is a menu bar app rather than you creating a fresh Electron app and then sort of doing those initial steps to tell it, to basically turn everything off. Like if you're creating menu bar app in Electron, you're going to want to make sure it doesn't show in the dock by default, that it doesn't open at the at launch and things like that. So you could definitely do it fairly easily in Electron by from scratch, but Electron doesn't assume that you're writing a menu bar app. So there are a lot of defaults that assume sort of a typical desktop app and menu bar handles all those defaults for you, assuming that you're writing a menu bar app so that you can just start and get going on that. So let's talk about some of the, the challenges that you have with the Electron team and the project. One interesting thing I find is that you're a fairly distributed team. Do you want to talk about how that creates unique uh, work challenges? <laughs> yeah, we are, the three of us are, three of us are on West Coast US time and then Chang is in Tokyo. So we rarely overlap with Chang, but what we do is we have three times a week, we have a team meeting. It's at 5 p.m. Pacific time. And two of those times are like a quick stand up to just say hi to each other and talk about whatever we want to talk about. And then one of those is an agendaed meeting. That's like the official Electron team call where we document what we talk about and that kind of thing. And if anyone else from GitHub wants to join, they can join. And then we use Slack and then GitHub a lot. And then we do team mini summits, which is a thing that GitHub does for remote teams get together like once or twice a year to work in the same location. When I look at the team that you have there, you, you have a mix of uh, I guess expertise that that seems to span appropriately <laughs> across uh, across the stack that because uh, Electron is is really that's a broad stack we're talking about we're talking about really low level work all the way up into design and front end work that seems like a big challenge to me but do you feel like you've got that fairly well covered I think it would be really nice if we had another Chang on the team <laughs> Yeah, he seems um, like a workhorse to me. He seems like he's the one really holding up a lot of the very low-level work. Yeah, and yeah, he's doing most of the low-level work. But Kevin now, since so we, up until May, we were mostly pushing, like Chang worked on core and Kevin and I, and then Zeke once uh, Zeke joined, we worked on all the stuff we launched with 
1.0, which would be the tooling stuff. So we'll also updating the site, making the docs better. We built the Electron API demos app and a testing library and a dev tools um, extension. And so we were all focused on that and Chang focused on core. And now that 1.0 has shipped, um, Kevin's getting more into core and Kevin and, or sorry, yeah, Kevin is focusing more on core and Zeke and I are still on the node and front end aspects. So when I compare this to the node project, which I'm most familiar with in terms of open source project work, you, you have a completely different challenge than, than we do because we're, we're fairly narrow in our scope. You know, we like to think we've got these broad challenges all the way down to the, the system level up into the framework level, but it's nothing compared to what you have to deal with because we, we're a consumer of V8 but you're a consumer of everything that Chromium ships and you have to care about all of that stuff. And I, and I have been watching the Electron repo for a while and the kinds of issues you have to deal with are so amazingly varied from people wanting to know how to change the border of a window to wanting to interact with you know, signals on the operating system. Is, is that a difficult challenge? Does that make it really hard work or do you think it's, it's being managed okay for now? I honestly, I think comparatively we do a decent job. And when I say we, I still want to give so much of the credit to Chang because <laughs> the fact that get that Electron stays under 300 issues, like Electron Electron on GitHub, just blows my mind. And a lot of that's due to his and now Kevin's work on core and triaging those issues. But one of the things we are trying to figure out is how to keep the issues on Electron Electron to be actual bug issues and how to where how do we sort of divert people who are asking like best practices questions to somewhere else and right now we're still sharing the like last piece of infrastructure that we're sharing with Adam still is this discuss uh, forum and so right now we point people there or to the there is a public slack room for Electron that's also within the Atom Slack. And so we've been pointing people there, but we also don't have enough coverage ourselves to be in those places all the time helping people. Luckily, a, the Electron community is great. And so a lot of people are in the chat room on Slack helping people out. But that's definitely something we, we think about is how to, how to handle both the stream of like, true core bugs and the amount of new people getting started on Electron and having questions about best practices and such. Well, when you've got that figured out, let us know because uh, <laughs> we have the same trouble with Node. Hey, what about the, the challenges of having a company-sponsored project? So this comes out of GitHub. The team is all employed by GitHub. You have consumers out there that are other companies, but how do you go about building a, a community around that, that that doesn't just drain your resources, but actually contributes back to the project? That is something we also want to, we, we want to figure out how to get more people to contribute back because we will meet people at meetups or conferences that work at companies and they're like, yeah, our company is using Electron and we love it. We would love to contribute upstream. What do we do? And we're kind of like, make a pull request. <laughs> and so I don't know what it is or what it might take to kind of get people over that initial hurdle. I think 
It's a really interesting point. It's something we want to figure out. How can we make people feel like Electron is enough of theirs, that it's it's worthy of them to contribute, right? It, to, for them to understand they also have a stake in Electron, that it's not just like, I don't know, them, are they allowed to touch GitHub's thing? Because we don't see it like that. We're very not precious with it. You know, if somebody is contributing a lot of great pull requests or code reviews, we add them as a maintainer. We just do it. There's no formal process or anything finicky about it. And so we really try to be this as good of an open source project that we can be that just happens to have its core people employed uh, by GitHub. And so, so far it's been good in that GitHub is amazed at the at the success of Electron and they're just kind of like, go forth and do, do what you know how to do best. And so GitHub understands that the direction of Electron will come from the community and not from somebody high up at GitHub. Is this, a, is this a unique thing for GitHub or do they have other projects that have taken a similar trajectory that they can learn from? Or are they using you as an experiment to figure out how to do this? <laughs> you know, I, I mean, GitHub has lots and lots of open source projects, but I don't think that any of them have taken off in the way that Electron has. I mean, Electron, I think, also fits a wider audience then, like, some, I mean, GitHub has all kinds of open source, really specific tools for, like, yeah, doing something like with your data. Like, pauses. And, yeah, yeah, and, like, database things. And so, Electron, I think, is different in that it is for more, has a, it has a bigger reach in that way. And so, I do think it is kind of a new thing for GitHub in this capacity, but... Adam and Electron at GitHub are part of the client apps team, which is under the engineering umbrella, but not like in core app, right? Like we're not a part of .com. And that's kind of a nice place to be because people just let us do. I don't want to jinx us, but, you know, we get to kind of do what we need to do for our, our world because they're focused on the github.com stuff. I, I'm, fa I'm absolutely fascinated to see how this works out because a lot of projects that really take off in a big way tend to go from the, you, you go from the hobbyist or hacker audience and you mature into the commercial audience, mm -hmm. but Electron has done both simultaneously. You have got big, um, uh, you know, basically corporate users pretty quickly off the bat and companies like Brave who, have, who are getting attracting significant funding. So you've got these corporate users that could potentially contribute back and also guide your development. But you've also got a lot of individuals out there that are, build, that are building very unique individual components on top of Electron. So it, it's a huge audience to try and manage. I think it's really awesome and interesting too, though, because so many people are hitting all the corners or with Electron, like when it was originally open source for Adam Shell, you know, all of its APIs were really specific to things that Adam, a text editor, needed to do. And so it's been this, these last few years, and especially the last year, 
where other people are building browsers and chat clients on Electron that they're pushing stuff upstream that just wouldn't have existed because no one needed to build it for Atom. And now, like, Atom, I don't think is on Electron 1.0 yet. I don't. Maybe I don't think they are. Hopefully that's safe to say. But so even now at this point, Adam is n- Adam's not driving Electron development. And so it's, it's interesting. So what is driving the development? How do you decide what your priorities are? That is, that is a good question. <laughs> we have to figure that out. I mean, we, we try to, I mean, we have a general idea of, right, like, Things that belong in core are things that are native APIs and exposing native integrations. So if something doesn't make sense to be in core, we would, you know, politely ask someone to just create this as a standalone project. But most of the time, people are helping us cover a ton of surface area in all the little tiny things you can do are just all the tiny parts of an operating system that need to be implemented. So there's all this stuff coming in that's just about like on Mac, you can have a a dark or a light menu bar and detecting that and detecting on Mac if someone can use the two finger scroll or not, or having the menus, the application menus be completely native like their native operating systems, right? So having, like, Mac has this standard for, like, common things in the menu system for zooming and things like that that initially, like, weren't implemented. And so all of these tiny niceties are being added now so that you can really make a nice native app. Does that, am I explaining that correctly? Yeah, no, it it sounds to me like, like, you recently got a new project manager, didn't you? And it sounds to me like that might be the part of their job is figuring out how to prioritize all this. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's probably a good thing to have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There are people um, already contributing APIs for, is it Sierra, the next Mac <laughs> iteration? Yeah. That's like in beta now. Yeah. There are APIs coming in for that. And so that's awesome. And yet there's no electron is electron's future is purely about desktop, isn't it? There's no thoughts about doing anything with mobile or any other, you know, moving off their desktop. No. I mean, so GitHub itself, we don't have any mobile things going on. Like we wouldn't even have a thing to test it against. GitHub.com itself is not responsive. So we as a company would don't have anything driving that development and then Right off the bat, it's a really challenging problem because Node doesn't work on phones and Chrome doesn't work on iPhones. So it would require a massive amount of, I don't know, completely changing what Electron is or completely rewriting Node and Chrome. That's a big yak to shave. Yes. So... Do you have thoughts about the future of desktop? Because I know a lot of people have been telling us for a while that the future is mobile, but <laughs> we see this this boom happening in desktop development. Does, does that suggest that desktop, that the future of desktop is alive and well? 
I I would think so. I don't know. I feel like I'm not thought leader enough <laughs> to make any claims <laughs> on like oh, come on. what the future is. I never stopped liking desktop apps. So I don't know because I still used like that Fluid app many years ago that would let you just pick a website and make it a desktop app so it didn't have to be a tab in your browser anymore. So I don't know. Oh, yeah, I, I remember that. Yeah, I might just be a weird one, but I've always liked desktop apps. Yeah, I, I wonder if it's just hyperbole that's um, maybe not being borne out. An interesting thing, just to finish off this section about some of the challenges with Electron, you have some pretty heavy dependencies. You've got Node, which is not, not trivial, but you've also got Chromium, which is, which is kind of massive, and you're a heavy consumer of all of Chromium. But Chromium moves at a six-week development pace. Can you tell us about some of the challenges, both with Chromium and also knitting that together with how Node works? So we actually only use the rendering library in Chromium. So we don't actually use all of Chromium, per se. Like, I think Node WebKit I, uses okay. well, all of Chromium. Can, can you explain that then? Because I, I don't even understand what that means. Um, <laughs> the rendering. It's, is that just the drawing part that draws the frames? Yes, exactly. So it's in the Electron org, it's libchromiumcontent. That is our fork of that library in Chromium that just knows how to draw a web page. And so that's why... But you also use V8, don't you? You, do, yes. you don't use the V8 that necessarily comes with Node. You use that, you pull that in from Chromium as well? Right, yeah. We're using Chromium's version of V8 and then sometimes patching Node to work with that version. But that is what hasn't... So using that smaller part of Chrome is what has enabled Electron to move as fast as it does. I mean, I'm sure there's some people who would like it to maybe work faster, but generally I think we're like a week after a, a stable Chrome release is when that Chrome will be in Electron, which I feel like is pretty good. That's pretty impressive. And it's because we have less patching because we're just using that part of Chromium. And, and what about the people that want it to move slower? Um, which is the challenge we've the challenge that we've faced with Node, which is that it's Node has matured to the point where people have been asking for a a, a longer term support or stability story, which is where the LTS stuff came from. What about those people, that, particularly the corporates that are trying to build things on it, that where they don't want to have to continually patch and update? Yeah, I think right now, at least from what I've seen, is that we don't hear too much about that I mean certainly we haven't heard enough about that for it to like come up on our calls and stuff so I, I feel like it's still in an early enough stage where people are still just pushing new stuff wanting it to do more and wanting to capture all the new stuff that is coming into Chrome that sounds a lot more fun than having to <laughs> pander to yeah okay fair enough <laughs> Okay, well, uh, that's that's really interesting. Did, did you want to just tell us quickly about your team? You've mentioned some of the names. Uh, do you want to just tell us about them and give them a shout out for the kind of work they do? Yeah, Kevin is he's been at GitHub for like five years now, which is incredible, and he has been really with Adam and Electron since the beginning, and so 
he is a wealth of knowledge and is essential to the team. And then, of course, ZC Benz Chang in Tokyo, who has written most of Electron. And then Zeke, who is new to, he's at Zeke on GitHub and I think Twitter too. He's new to the Electron team and has been really awesome in helping build the tooling and working with me on that kind of stuff. Because a part of also what we're trying to do with Electron besides make core as great as it can be and have all these integrations into native environments, but we're also trying to build lots of tooling so that using Electron itself is easier to get into um, as someone starting off. And so working on documentation, um, like Zeke's working on this API JSON right now, we're trying to turn our API into data really so that we have this canonical set of all the APIs, their descriptions, we can start to tag them with dates and know exactly when certain APIs were introduced. It can be used then for, you know, autocomplete and things like that. So that's cool. the team. Okay. So let's move on to, you said you weren't good at futurism, but being a futurist, but um, I'm going to ask you to, I'm going to ask you to slip into futurist mode here and maybe we'll just start off with Electron. What do you think the future holds for Electron? Where is it going? Uh, what are the, the challenges that you're still trying to address to get to that future? Um, yeah. or, or do you just not have a sense for where it's going and you're just riding a wave? Riding a wave? I mean, I feel like the future things I think about aren't like, Electron's going to make your breakfast next year. <laughs> it's like how we need better arm support. That's something that we want to tackle. Like right now, Electron makes one arm build. It's just called arm, but it's actually arm seven. But we want to label it arm and support arm six and eight and do things like that. We just got a few accessibility things in that will probably be blogged about next week, but that was something that I really wanted to have get better because there are lots of resources online for, you know, copy and paste in your website URL and we'll give you an accessibility audit. And so Electron apps are still comprised mostly of websites and so they need to follow the same rules, but they don't have URLs that you can put in these apps. And so Spectron, this testing library for Electron and DevTron, the DevTools extension, both now have accessibility components using using the same library that the Google Google Chrome DevTools accessibility extension is also using, so that you can get an accessibility report about your app. Just going to ask about the accessibility thing. I think I think I recall somebody talking about the Visual Studio Code team actually having somebody on that team who has accessibility needs, and that's that's driven a lot of their development. Do you know anything about that? I don't know any more specifics other than like that sounds familiar <laughs> to me. Yeah. I, I think there might be a conference talk out there or something. Yeah, that might be an interesting one to follow up on for people interested in accessibility. I don't know. I still feel like we're just covering a lot of basic ground. I think hopefully the future will hold more 
CSS libraries for Electron apps, sort of like theming, you know, because that's still a part of Electron development that is not solidified. That's more like, hopefully you've seen the right conference talk or talk to somebody because the common knowledge about how to best design an Electron app is not documented as much as I think, you know, just using Electron APIs are. So even though you're using HTML and CSS, a desktop app feels different in tiny ways than a website from the way the cursor looks depending on what you're hovering, right? Like you don't necessarily get the hand on desktop apps. Removing like the rubber band scroll at the top of a page, that happens in websites, not desktop apps. And so there are these things that you don't actually think about that you need to turn off. Highlighting text. You don't get to highlight text in a desktop app, but you do on a website. So things you would never do on a website with your CSS, you actually need to do in an Electron app. And so I hope that more stuff develops around that so that everybody can be sharing and learning these kind of standards for doing that. I, I still find it interesting when, when in my Slack app on my Mac laptop, I can command R for reload and it reloads <laughs> just like a normal website. Um, that seems like it's that whole area of what is that crossover point? What is the UI feel between web and, and app, a desktop yeah. app? Where, where is that line? Oh, I thought of another future thing. Okay. <laughs> now I'm going to put on my futurist hat, actually. I mean, I think, you know, Adam obviously did this, but I think Hyperterm now is a great example because it did this and then stuff took off really fast, was built using Electron to build an app that's extensible because that has not existed in our concept of what a desktop app is. And maybe this is what will make desktop cool or cool again, what, however you feel about the history of desktop. Things are extensible now and they're extensible with languages like HTML and JavaScript. And so with Atom, you can build a plugin and customize it to be how you want it to be or not even build a plugin, right? Like you said, like you can refresh it or you can open dev tools and find out the exact CSS class that is styling this element and you can overwrite it. And so Hyperterm is a terminal that came out a few weeks ago that is like that and just it just took off <laughs> and now you can you can google for awesome hyperterm to see all the things that people have built on top of hyperterm and so i think what is awesome i guess then about the future of electron and electron apps is that people have more control over what they're using and they can create the kind of environment and application that they want to be using and it's not so much as this company is the only company that makes this app and I'm just beholden to whatever they want to ship you know like you have a say you have some control over the things that you're using and I think that that's really awesome yeah that is awesome I'm sitting here shaking my head uh, sorry uh, nodding my head I mean <laughs> that's yeah okay well in more more general terms then one of the one of the things I'm wanting to get out of these one on one podcasts is advice and thoughts for people who are new to the industry new to programming new to the the tech world that are looking for how to level up how to target their career what are the things they should be learning who should they be learning from 
a lot of what you've given us is great background and great information about what's going on. But do you have any specific advice for people who are new to the industry? Any advice at all? Um, if you have nothing, that's fine too. So I I don't know if this is great advice or exciting advice or not, but I really feel like you have to find the thing you want to exist in the world because you're never going to learn that next thing unless there isn't really a reason for you to learn it. I mean, obviously, like, if it becomes your job at work and you have to learn it, that's one thing. But if it's you thinking, oh, maybe it would be really helpful if I use this and my only path to using this is teaching myself this, I think that you've got to come up with a thing that you're passionate about that needs to exist. I, that's, Or at least that's how it's been for me. I mean, I didn't even really set out when I did Code for America to fully learn to program and become a developer. I am, I'm still grappling with the fact that I live on the West Coast now and I only meant to go to California for a year and go back. <laughs> and that was in t- the end of 2011. And so... I totally was just going to do the Code for America year, work to make city technology better, and go back. But I found things that I was passionate about needing to exist, and that really drove me to learn each thing. And it, getting excited about Get It, you know, took me over the edge from doing client side stuff to doing Node stuff. And so every single time, there has had to have been this thing I wanted to exist in the world. That's that's really good advice, and I and I feel that as well. That and then some of the biggest steps that I've made have been that, that for that same thing. But one of the big challenges is it coming up with that belief that you can do it because most of these things that you don't understand yet feel often feel too intimidating. How do you think you can? What is there general advice for getting over that hump? How have you done that in the past? Yeah. It took me a a while, but I finally, well, all right, I'm not going to say I'm completely over this, but it did take a while to get over the fear of making mistakes in public, putting stuff on GitHub that might be broken or unpolished, and using that as a way to just try new things. And so, I don't know if, if, if that helps, but... I do think, like, it's it's tough and you have to eventually get to a point where you understand or somehow you just get better. Maybe you'll never accept it. I haven't accepted it. I still hate when I don't know things and I don't want to speak up about when I don't know things too often. But that is that is a hurdle. And so getting more and more comfortable with asking questions, ask everyone questions. It's the classic imposter syndrome thing that most of us suffer from. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any advice on books or favorite speakers or authors or conferences? Or would you suggest people go like Chase Code for America? Do you have Do you have suggestions on any of those things for leveling <laughs> up and pursuing a career? I do recommend Code for America. I think the applications are closed for this year already. But Code for America, there's also... Mozilla has an open news fellowship where it's similar at Code for America, but they pair you with newsrooms. And one thing that super gets me exciting is coding and development in newsrooms because they do a lot of open source stuff and their people, like D3 came out of a newsroom, Backbone 
came out of the newsroom, right? I think so. Like they came out of the New York Yeah, Times, I think that's like, right. Or at least like I think maybe D3 maybe started before then. But anyways, my point is that a lot of cool stuff happens in newsrooms. And so, I mean, they've right they're all online now and they have to learn how to be digital and they have to learn how to do it the fastest and nicest. And so they're really in a position to be pushing the edge of things. And so I think development in newsrooms is awesome. And honestly, my favorite people in the world are news geeks. And so Mozilla just had SourceCon in Portland, so you can't go to that now, but maybe you can go next year. But the open news stuff that Mozilla does is really interesting. It's all about open source and newsrooms. And so their conferences are good. The Mozilla also does MozFest in London. That's really good. Both of them try to do this different model of conferences where you actually have to learn something. All the sessions are participatory, so it's not just someone talking at you each time. Okay. Yeah. That sounds great. <laughs> well, um, hopefully you'll have people hitting you up with, for more information about these things on Twitter or elsewhere, but uh, that's, that's really great advice. This has been great. I've really enjoyed this, and I'm pretty sure that lots of other people will enjoy this. We might round it out now with some some plugs. It's a time where we get to plug something random, and you've got something to plug, Jessica? Yes. I don't know what to say at all, but I was looking at my Twitter thinking like, oh, what is interesting? What do I like that's interesting? (laughs) And then so I decided to give my plug to Lucy Worsley, who is a historian in the UK, What I think is awesome is that the UK seems to have women, professional historian women that are allowed to be on TV and have TV shows. So there's like Susanna Lipcomb, Lucy Worsley, Mary Beard. They're awesome women. They all get television programs. And so you actually get to see really smart women talk about history. But Lucy Worsley is my favorite. And so I don't live in the UK. So I use YouTube. Usually somebody puts them on YouTube. I hope that's okay to say. <laughs> oh, well, we'll find out if it's not. Uh, so you've got a website there, lucywarsley.com. We'll put that in the show notes. My plug is... So I've been on a bit of a, a fiction bend recently, reading lots of fiction. I haven't read any Stephen King before, but I just read a series, a trilogy by him called the Bill Hodges Trilogy, and I want to recommend that. It's got it's this three books, Mr. Mercedes, Finders Keepers, and End of Watch. Just finished them. It starts off as a classic sort of crime thriller-ish thing, and at the last book it sort of turns into what you would normally expect from Stephen King. So I can recommend that as a, a plug for anyone looking for some interesting fiction. Okay, so some upcoming events. We've got two Node Interactives coming up. Node Interactive EU, September the 15th to 16th in Amsterdam. Node Interactive Node Interactive North America, November the 29th to 30th in Austin. We'll have links on the show notes for those, but they're expected to be big conferences with lots of interesting speakers. I don't know if the speakers have been announced for North America yet, but they have for EU, so they'll be on there. Thanks very much again, Jessica, for joining us. It's been fantastic. Thank um, you. It's so nice to talk to you. Final words are follow NodeUp on Twitter, at NodeUp. Sponsor NodeUp if you want these to continue. Email NodeUp at gmail.com for a sponsorship package so you can find out how much it is and, and what you get for that. But please do that. Thanks for listening. So goodbye from me and goodbye from Jessica. Bye. Bye.